this is one of those Sundays where I preach first, so the ladies are going to be back to lead us in some musical worship in just a little while, but uh, we are in the midst of uh, this series through the book of Ephesians called A Crash Course in Christianity, looking at some of the key themes uh, about God and his people, the church, throughout the book of Ephesians. We're up to chapter 3 this morning, uh, verses 1 through 13, and today we're calling this A Crash Course in the church, a crash course in the church. Now, you know, everybody loves a mystery, or at least most people do, I think. We have mystery books, right, mystery movies. I'm personally particularly fond of John Grisham's legal thrillers. I like those. Everybody loves to know the answer to a mystery, right? Mysteries that go unsolved give cause for speculation, conjecture, uh, and so everybody wants a resolution to a mystery. So we have like TV shows like Dateline that uh, string us along, right, with real life mysteries that always reveal the, the whodunit at the end of the 60-minute broadcast. How convenient is that, right? Everything gets wrapped up so neatly. Well, I want you to think about this. God has a mystery, God is a God of mystery. For thousands of years, God possessed a mystery that many longed to know, but were unable to know because it hadn't been revealed to them. Now, we've been talking about the city of Ephesus and the people that lived there. And one of the things I told you several weeks ago in the introduction was that Ephesus was a very pagan culture. In Ephesus, private cult societies touched most Ephesians much more deeply, even than uh, the public pagan gods that were so much a part of their culture. Some societies were simply clubs that were attached to a public temple. Remember we talked about the famed Temple of Diana, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, that gleaming facade there uh, high above Ephesus. And it was not uncommon for a, a group of men or several families to actually own a room that was connected to the temple, and there they would hold ceremonial meals after a, a, liturgy, a liturgy, a pagan worship service. Some of them were connected to the industrial guilds like the silversmiths or the gold artisans, and most of those guilds had their own patron deities or gods with a little g. But increasingly popular in the first century, in which Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, were what were called mystery religions. These were cults with regular uh, meetings which only members who had gone, undergone initiation could participate in. Those meetings would include ritual meals and ceremonies, and members were often subject to very strict moral codes and the stern discipline of a leader, and some really bizarre traditions. Special constraints on food or sexuality in some way were common, as were rules of ritual cleanliness. And if you were to break a taboo, that would incur the wrath of the God associated with your mystery cult. Or it would require some form of penance, in an, such as an offering or some sort of punishment that would be issued to you. Initiation in, into one of these groups usually involved participation in what was called a ritual drama in which the people would initiate, um, uh, who, that were being initiated would symbolically die 
and be remade by the God or become immortal. And the right gave saving power, but only for a limited time. And so people often had to repeat the ceremony or were initiated into numerous different cults because none of the cults really demanded exclusive loyalty. That's because initiation was open to anyone, which is pretty cool, right? Open to anyone, regardless of social class, even of gender, which was a big deal in the first century. For the cults were meant to allow temporary escape from social roles. However, since initiation was usually very expensive, you see where this is going? If you had the money, you could get in. So only the folks with the money or someone that had a, a patron, someone that would pay for them, could afford to get into these mystery cults. Contact with the divine then was considered a luxury. And so it was into that culture that Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians. And many of the Christian people in the local Ephesian church had left behind these secret societies or the pagan worship that was so prevalent in order to respond to the good news of true freedom in Jesus Christ. Because when Paul came to Ephesus, that's what he was preaching about. Unlike the, the guarded rites of the mystery cult and the close-kept knowledge of the, the Gnostics, the knowing ones that was so prevalent in, in Ephesus, there was nothing mysterious or incomprehensible about God's secret. It was simply kept until God chose to reveal it. And now Paul says it is absolutely not to be kept private, but to be shared. So in our text today, and in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses the word mystery numerous times, seven times in the letter to the Ephesians, but four times in our text today, Paul refers to the mystery of God. And in Paul's terminology, it's important for us to understand, a mystery is a truth that was previously hidden in God's history and plan, but now has been revealed. It's like God pulled back the curtain and let all of his people see the plan and the purpose. So here's the big idea for us to take home today. God's great and mysterious work in Jesus Christ is to establish a new community. We call it the church. God called it the church. And that is to display his glory to the world. So we want to spend some time this morning concerning God's mystery and our part corporately and individually as God's church. So let's jump into the text. And first we have to unfold the mystery. Unfold the mystery. It's kind of like uh, when I take a, a shirt out of the drawer. My wife has done the laundry because she does that at our house. And I take a shirt out and it's all folded neatly and I unfold it and I put it on. I unfold the mystery. We're going to unfold the mystery as we talk about the mystery that God has for us. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 to begin with. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, 
how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, and I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So, in verse 1, Paul is about to state a prayer on behalf of the Gentiles. But before he gets into the prayer, he kind of starts down another, what is really a valuable road for us, concerning this mystery. Paul says that the Ephesians know why he is doing what he's doing. He says, you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. All right, that word stewardship or steward is kind of like a manager. So Paul says, God has given me something. He's given me control of something that belongs to him and I'm managing it and I'm sharing it with you. Paul says that he was given the responsibility as a steward of the gospel of grace to extend the message of God. This is what he calls the mystery. A mystery was made known to Paul by revelation. God pulled back the curtain for Paul. In verse 5, Paul says that this mystery was not revealed to people in earlier generations. It wasn't for them. No one else received this revelation of the mystery of the gospel. No one else was given this revealing from the God, from God. The mystery of the gospel was revealed, Paul says, to the holy prophets and apostles only by the Holy Spirit. So I want you to see what Paul is declaring here. God is not directly revealing his will to the Ephesians or to you and I. God revealed the mystery of the gospel through the Holy Spirit first to the apostles and the prophets. By the way, this is what made one an apostle or a prophet, receiving direct revelation from God. So if somebody today tells you that they are an apostle or a prophet, you need to view that with some skepticism. You mean God has given you a direct message apart from his word? That's pretty astounding. So how are we to know what we must do? How are we to learn the gospel? How can we know the mystery that God has finally revealed? Well, look carefully at verse 4. Paul says, when you read this... In other words, this letter that he's writing that we call Paul's letter to the Ephesians, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying we can have his mind. That's what insight is. We're, we're getting into Paul's mind here. We can have the same knowledge that Paul had. We can have the same mind as Paul concerning the mystery of the gospel. How? Well, when we read and understand his words, which today we call scripture. The Holy Spirit revealed the mystery of God directly to his apostles and prophets, and then they wrote it down. And when we read those writings, we too can understand the mystery. It's like that curtain is pulled back for us. Now, it's important for us to understand the, the full weight of what Paul is saying. God is not revealing himself to you 
or to me by some touchy-feely secret way, some vague kind of inclination that you might feel or think about. You see, God has already revealed himself to his apostles and prophets. And those apostles and prophets who received the stewardship, the management, the responsibility of God's grace wrote those truths down so that all people for all generations, here we are 21 centuries later, we can read and have the same insight that these first century Christians did. I want you to remember back in chapter one of Ephesians when we were back there in verse 20 where Paul says that he is praying to the Ephes uh, for the Ephesian Christians, remember that, that they would have what he called the spirit of wisdom so that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. Well, how, how does this wisdom and this enlightenment come? Well, it comes when we re read with that spirit of discernment and wisdom. So we too can have the eyes of our heart enlightened. This is why the, the Hebrew writer could powerfully declare that the word of God is living and active. You see, the unfolding mystery of God for the Ephesians in the first century and for us in the 21st century is that his word, carefully written and protected and preserved and passed down through the ages, reveals his plan and purpose for you and I. That's powerful. Another thing to remember is that as Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, he was probably under arrest in Rome. House arrest, we call it. Now, if the average person had met Paul, they probably would have seen him as nothing more than a common prisoner waiting for trial. But as you and I read this passage, we see that Paul understands that he is part of something much, much bigger. In verse 2, he talked about being a steward of God's grace. Paul sees himself as having a God-given role in making the gospel known to others, specifically to these Gentile people who had never heard anything about Jesus before. In other words, Paul realized he was part of something much bigger, part of the plan of God who created all things. And I want you to notice the change that it made. What does Paul call himself? He calls himself a prisoner of who? Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Caesar, but a prisoner of Jesus. He could see that God, not Nero, was in control and had put him right where God wanted him to be, even though it was under arrest. Then he said, on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul, the Jew, has been arrested and because of his association with these Gentiles, he's been put in prison and he could see, he could understand that his suffering, his placement there, had a purpose. It wasn't just a random event. He was giving his life to a purpose that transcended his imprisonment, that rose above it. Friends, this is the unfolding mystery of God. As he uses unlikely people and ordinary circumstances for his glory. That's important for us to understand. So, next, now that the mystery has been unfolded, as it were, the next thing we have to do is spend some time 
understanding the mystery. Understanding the mystery. In verse 6, Paul explicitly declares what this mystery was that has now been revealed to the world through the apostles and prophets. Let's read this passage together, verses 6 through 9. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a servant according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Amen. The word of God. So the mystery is literally the message of the gospel. How would God save the world when there was only one chosen people, Israel? And they had miserably failed in living according to the glory of God. Well, Paul reminded us how back in Ephesians chapter 2 when he said that Jesus would nullify or put away the covenant of hostility that separated Jews and Gentiles. And he would create a new body of people so that all people, regardless of race or background, would be reconciled to God and saved from their sins. Anybody can come to God. The good news of salvation and reconciliation was not revealed to humanity, but to God's special servants, which we can fully understand when we read what they write. This is important because it puts all of us on an equal plane. This is important for us to understand. No Christian is greater than another. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? What I'm giving to you when I teach, when I stand up here on the platform and teach, is not some special revelation by God. It's merely me spending time in the word of God and declaring to you what I've learned, what I've read. Read and you can understand the gospel. There is no other mechanism. There is no other way. This is God's plan and purpose for us. In verse 7, Paul spoke of becoming a servant of this gospel. He says, by the gift of God's grace. You know, most of the time, I think we tend to talk about what we do for God. Well, I do this for God. I give this for God. I make this sacrifice for God. I do this. But see, that's not how Paul phrased it. He, he saw his ministry, his service, not as his gift to God, but as God's gift to him. Let that settle in for a moment. When you serve on behalf of Jesus, it's not you serving Jesus, but Jesus giving you a gift. A gift of the ability to serve. The freedom to serve and the outcome of what that service means. It is a gift from God. And then I want you to notice in verse 8, Paul's humility. He says, he himself, he calls himself the least of all the Lord's people, or the saints. I'm the least of all the saints. Now this is not Paul 
putting up some false humility. Oh, it's just me, I'm Paul, I'm no good. No, he's genuinely humble. Paul knew that he was in need of God's grace as much as any person who has ever followed the Lord. And friends, that's true of you and of me as well. If you don't understand your desperate brokenness, then you don't really understand the gospel and your need for it. Because Paul grasped the gospel and his part in it, he had confidence and hope even in the middle of his trials, like being imprisoned. He knew he was part of something bigger, and it gave him hope even as he remained under arrest. And friends, understanding the gospel can give us confidence and hope in our trials as well. Are things not going the way you expected? Are times a little tough? Has it been a little rough for you lately? Do you understand that God can give you hope and confidence no matter what the outside circumstances are doing? We all need to live for something bigger than ourselves. I came across this quote by, from an author by the name of Paul David Tripp. He said this, there is woven inside each of us a desire for something more. A craving to be part of something bigger, greater, and more profound than our relatively meaningless day-to-day -day existence. Friends, that longing that is in us, that longing is to be a part of something more in our life. And that is a gift from God. And that something more is not your favorite sports team. It's not your favorite political party. It's not your bank account or your job or whatever else that might be used to try to fill that emptiness within. That desire for more is given to you so that you will desire what God has for you. So what is this more? It's simply the gospel. Understanding the gospel allowed Paul to see his life completely differently. And the same thing can happen for us. Instead of, instead of seeing ourselves as a, as a teacher or a mill worker or some other job that you hold, a retiree, whatever it might be, whatever label you put on, don't see yourself that way. We can see ourselves as stewards, managers, servants working for Jesus Christ. When we suffer, we can see that even our suffering has a purpose. When we serve God, we see the ministry as a gift from God rather than an obligation or something we're doing for God. And it will give us humility because we'll marvel. We'll marvel that God has chosen us even though we are the least of God's people. Understanding the gospel can give us confidence and hope in all of life's circumstances. Here, here's what we need to know. I want you to know this. You matter. Not extraordinary you. I'm talking about ordinary, everyday you. You matter. If you were ever to go to the coast of England, I would hope that you would get a chance to stare out over the English Channel toward Dunkirk, and imagine what happened there. 
in the spring of 1940. Hitler had the Allied forces in a corner in France, and he was getting ready to invade Great Britain. His troops were closing in on the Allies in what was going to become a very easy kill. Nearly a quarter million young British soldiers and over 100,000 more Allied troops faced capture or certain death. And the Royal Navy could only save a small fraction of that number. But then, don't you love that word, but? But then, a bizarre fleet of ships appeared on the horizon of the English Channel. These were not warships. These were trawlers and tugboats, fishing sloops, lifeboats, sailboats, pleasure crafts, yachts, an island ferry boat named Gracie Fields, and even the America's Cup Challenger Endeavor. And all of those boats were manned by civilian sailors. And they sped to the rescue. The ragtag armada eventually rescued 338,682 soldiers and returned them home safely to the shores of England. All while pilots of the Royal Air Force jockeyed with the German Luftwaffe in the skies above. It was one of the most remarkable naval operations in history. And it didn't involve warships and destroyers. It involved trawlers, pleasure craft. But for those days, those few days, they were more. Weren't they more than trawlers and fishing boats? They could put up with all kinds of difficulty because they had a purpose, a distinct purpose. And friends, what I want us to understand as God's people, we can have the same thing in our life. When we understand the mystery of the gospel that gives us purpose, that we are a part of something so much bigger than us in this life, and that that purpose rises above all of the mundane trials that we all experience on a day-to-day basis. God can use you, friends, Don't waste your life. Be a part of what he's doing. And that leads then to our last point. After we've unfolded the mystery and we understand the mystery, we have to utilize the mystery. We have to utilize it. What if I took that shirt out of the drawer that my wife so carefully folded up and I took it up and held it up and said, wow, look at my shirt. I wouldn't be utilizing the shirt, would I? Verse 10 begins, so that, so that. Paul now gives the reason for all of this stuff that he's already talked about. We are to utilize the mystery. Let's read verses 10 through 13 together. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. 
So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Amen. Amen. So Paul is proclaiming and he's writing down the mystery of Christ, the gospel, the unsearchable riches of Christ. God has entrusted the gospel message of reconciliation, of making things right between us and God. He's entrusted that process to the apostles and prophets. They wrote it down so that we, the church, would understand what we read. The church is the body of Christ in this world. Notice that Paul goes back to a corporate concept, not an individual concept. This is one of the, the great problems of American Christianity today. We see our faith as private, as between us and the man upstairs, if you will, rather than corporate, as God intends. The church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And to be connected to Christ means to be a part of his church. We together, as the body of believers, Paul says, will do something. You see, this mystery doesn't end with us. It's not that we get to the gospel and we think, oh, that's so amazing. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Amen, I believe that. Thank you, Jesus. I'm saved now. And I'm done. No. We together will do something. The gospel message of reconciliation was proclaimed so that each of us together as the body of Christ, the church, would utilize. That means to share and announce it to others. We are displaying God's vast wisdom to all creation, including even the spiritual realm. God has revealed his will to change your life and to change my life and to reconcile us to him so that we would display his glory and his wisdom to this part of creation that he's placed us in, right here in Lane County. Friends, that means that we get to be part of something huge, and that is the church that God is building. Not only did Paul see his life as part of something bigger, but he looked around and he saw that as the mystery of the gospel was being revealed, as the curtain was being pulled at, back, that God was accomplishing something mind-boggling. Look at verse 10 again. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom, manifold means a lot, all right? The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The very existence of the church, Paul wrote, has a much higher purpose than we even realize. It's an amazing thing that spiritually dead people are raised to new life. That former enemies become family with each other in the church. This is such a big deal because it is the way that God has chosen to reveal his wisdom in its rich variety. Now, just think for a minute how all the different ways that God could show himself, not just to the world, but to the angels and the demons, to show his great wisdom. 
There's all kinds of ways God could have done that. The human genome shows that, that God is wise. Researchers are learning stuff about that all the time. Scientists are unraveling all the ways that information is stored in our DNA that makes us who we are. It's amazing. The universe, creation itself, shows God's wisdom. There are a, a multitude of ways that God could choose to show his great wisdom to the world. But how is it that God has chosen to do it? Through his church. Through us. I mean, that's just crazy, isn't it? it it's so crazy. Why would God choose us? I don't know about you, but why, why would he choose me? Why? It makes no sense. And somebody once said that the history of the church has become a graduate school for angels. Isn't that interesting? You know, the demons thought that they had Jesus killed once and for all. All of his followers were scattered, but then what happened? In three days, he rose from the dead. Wow! But then what happened? He left. Well, you certainly can't expect much from a small group of followers who had never really amounted to much when Jesus was here. But then what happens? Peter, yeah, that guy. Peter, he got up to preach. And thousands, thousands became a part of the church that day. Satan and his demons threw everything they could at the church. Persecution, death, fear, corruption through the centuries. But what happened? The church continued to spread. It continued to grow all throughout the Roman Empire, all throughout the known world, so that this obscure marginal movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world for centuries. Well, that's great. That's a little history lesson. But what does it mean for you and for me? Here's what it means. It means that little Garden Way Church right here in Eugene, Oregon, as we unfold, and understand and utilize the gospel. It means that as we do that, demons are getting schooled. We, you and me folks, we are a tangible reminder to the powers that be that their authority has been broken and that Jesus Christ is the victor and that he is on the move. Do you believe that? The progress of the gospel will not be hindered. Oh, we wring our hands. Oh, what's this world coming to? Oh, what's our country coming to? Oh, no, what's going to happen? The gospel will not be hindered. What did Jesus say about it? The gates of hell will not prevail. God is on the move, and he uses us. Unlikely as we might be, obscure as we might be, ordinary as we might be, God uses us as proof to the spiritual realms that his kingdom is victorious. You know, so many of us live with little to no awareness of the drama that's going on around us. But our lives, this church has cosmic significance your gift may seem small to you. Your life may seem small, but it's not. Because 
you're part of something bigger. And you're part of something that God is doing in this world. Don't ever think that God can't use you. Your weakness and God's power are a perfect match. How can you take part? Well, we've covered it. It's not complicated. Unfold the gospel, understand the gospel, and then utilize the gospel. Take the shirt out of the drawer, hold it up, shake it out, put it on, and wear it as you represent Jesus in this world. Live it out, go farther in mission, and then do it again, and do it again. I read a story about several years ago down in the, in the Bay Area of California in, uh, I don't know how you pronounce this, Milpitas, California. I think that's how you pronounce it. The Milpitas High School Orchestra, they put on a concert. And a few days later, a review appeared in the local newspaper. And the headline read, Milpitas High School Attempts Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. The result, appalling. And then here's what the critic wrote. He, he wrote, I wouldn't be surprised if the performance made old Ludwig roll over in his grave despite his deafness. You might ask, why bother? Why inflict on those poor kids the terrible burden of trying to render what the immortal Beethoven had in mind? Not even the great Chicago Symphony Orchestra can attain that perfection. Well, a few days later, somebody wrote a letter to the editor, which was published in that same newspaper, and it said this, it is true that last Friday night the Milpitas High School Orchestra put on a performance that was far from accomplished. But for some who were in the audience, this will be their only encounter with Beethoven's great ninth symphony. Far from perfection, it is nevertheless the only way they may ever hear Beethoven's message. Friends, the only way that a starving, thirsty, deluded, suffering world will ever hear the music of the gospel is through the body of Christ. We are arguably the worst high school orchestra ever to appear on a bandstand. I mean, let's be honest. If performance standards are really the most important measure, then the church is in trouble. But you see, God is determined to trade the perfection of his solo performance for the possibility of playing, could we say, a little improv, improv jazz with us? Maybe we're playing the screechy clarinet in the orchestra in the kingdom of God's really big band. And that's okay. Because we're part of something bigger. Do you believe that, friends? You are, and we are together. And it's not because we're anything special. It's because God uses unlikely people, ordinary people like you and like me, and we get to be a part of his church. It's not just you and Jesus. It's you and his church. Enter into what God wants to do with your life. Walk, but walk in weakness and obedience and humility before him. And he will use you 
in ways that you cannot even imagine for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we